This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 456, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little trick. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. And before we jump into today's topic, I just wanted to say that as I record this, we're nearing the end of 2018. It's been a banner year here for myself in New York. I'm very grateful for the amazing opportunities I've had and a great, great amount of people I've worked with this year. And just hope that that you've had a fabulous year as well. Looking forward to 2019. And I did want to mention that uh, shortly after the beginning of the year, so in just a few weeks, we will be opening registration for the 2019 Daniel Glass Jazz Intensive there's already been a lot of interest in uh, next year's event, so I'm excited to get the registration open, and um, I will be letting you know when that happens. We also, I'm crossing my fingers that we're going to have a very special guest instructor this year. Can't say anything yet. It's not confirmed. Um, if you're interested in learning more about what that whole thing is about, I invite you to go to um, my website, danielglass.com, and go to the uh, clinics slash intensives tab, and you could see their uh, info for the 2019 Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive. Of course, that is four days and nights in New York studying jazz, immersing yourself in jazz, um, and it's it's a wonderful experience. This is our fourth annual coming up in 2019. Okay, on with the topic at hand. So as some of you know, in previous podcasts, I've done something called Five Favorites, where I get with a um, well-known drummer and I um, interview them, uh, not so much about their career per se, but about five favorite um, albums, artists, drummers, uh, things that, that, that have meant something to them in their life, have influenced them. And then we sort of take the conversation out from there and it becomes not so much of a biographical interview, but more of a... Of a uh, just a, an amazing and interesting talk about music, and so these have been a lot of fun. So my guest this week, who I'm really excited to um, to to bring onto the program, uh, is a guy that maybe you haven't heard of, maybe you have. Um, he's not that well known, but he's sort of, I would say, kind of a Forrest Gump of the music industry and the drumming industry. He's been around for a long time. His name is Joe Franco, and um, I first came to know about Joe through his uh, very well-known book on double bass drumming, and that's literally the name of the book, Double Bass Drumming. Um, it really was, came out in the early 80s, and it was the first, really the first of its kind, comprehensive look at double bass playing, very influential book. Joe himself um, has had the most interesting career as a drummer and beyond, and we're going to jump into that when we talk to him. I should mention that I first met Joe at a, um, a, a drummer's lunch club that we sort of have here in New York once every month or two. Um, a bunch of drummers 
all assemble at a restaurant down in the West Village and have lunch and share war stories. And there's some notables. Uh, it was organized by um, a guy named Louis Appel, who since passed away, who was the drummer for um, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Dukes, among many others. But Billy Ward is a founding member, I guess you could say. Sean Pelton comes by sometime and lots of other well-known drummers. So Joe Franco is um, generally there when he can make it. And uh, I met Joe, had the chance to actually get to know him after, you know, just hearing about him. And he has such an amazing story that really threads through... um, he, you know, he grew up in New York uh, at a very pivotal time. He was 12 years old when the Beatles played on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. He threw himself into the rock and roll thing very early on. He studied with Carmine Apice when Apice was writing the realistic rock book. So he actually studied out of the legendary realistic rock book as it was being created. Um, and he went on to play in a lot of well-known bands. His resume is pretty ridiculous if you just look at uh, IMDb. He he was a regular member of a band called The Good Rats, which you'll learn more about. And you may not have heard of them, but they're quite, um, uh, uh, quite influential and important in a lot of ways, especially in on you know here in the New York area. Um, played with uh, Vinnie Moore, Leslie West from Mountain Blues, Saraceno, uh, Natalie Cole. Into the 80s, then Taylor Dane, um, he was on Mariah Carey's first record, um, Hall & Oates, Sheena Easton, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. And, um, and then he sort of switched things up in, by the end of the 80s and has been involved on the other side, the production side of music. In my opinion, Joe Franco is an inspiration to me as someone who has you know, been in this business almost 30 years. If you add maybe another 15 years on to that, he's at that stage. And I think he's, he's, he's done it really well as far as a drummer who's managed to take his various skill sets, always looking forward, never backward, never resting on his laurels, always excited about the possibility of what's new and coming down the line. And I think, you know, he inspires me because um, he shows me what's possible for me and hopefully for you that, um, you know, we can continue to evolve and change and grow and not give up our passions, not give up our dreams. Um, I think a lot of people, maybe if they have some success in the business or they get locked into something that works, they sort of stay frozen there. And I think, especially in the world we live in today, we have to continue to look forward and not be afraid to leap um, into new possibilities um, and sort of be ready to do that, you know, and, and sort of see when those right place at right time moments show up and, and, and be ready to jump on them. So um, that is why I'm having, you know, I'm excited to have this gentleman on the program today. So um, without further ado, I would really love to present my good friend, and uh, I would consider him to be kind of a legend of drumming. Uh, here's my conversation with the great Joe Franco. So I'm hanging out with my good friend Joe Franco, uh, who, who uh, over the last couple of years through these drum drummer luncheons in New York City has become a great friend. And um, Joe, welcome to the Daniel Glass Show. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for inviting me. It is it is a real pleasure and an honor. Um, and I thought, you know, I've done this uh, five favorites uh, 
sort of interview format with some guests in the past where we sort of pick a song or an album and um, use that to expound on music and, and on its influences on you and what you've done in your career. And I thought that'd be fun. And you actually came up with a really cool um, kind of an idea. You sort of took this very intense period of the late 60s and early 70s that was your, um, you know, a very uh, obviously a formative period for you and sort of divided that into five categories. And uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm excited to, to have this conversation and see where we go. Yeah. Um, so the first, the first period you, you call British Invasion One, and maybe you could explain where you were uh, and what this period means and kind of uh, fill us in. Yeah, well, I was a kid, you know, probably maybe eighth grade or so and uh, playing stickball in the streets of Brooklyn, you know. And then you probably heard this story a zillion times. The Beatles came on Ed Sullivan. Yes. Um, that was it. You know, overnight, it went from Mickey Mantle to Ringo Starr. I mean, hands down, this and, guy is way cooler. And um, you were and how old in, uh, this was about, in 1964, right? Yeah, I was about, you know, 11 or 12. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect age for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, something but like like it was more and, and, and one of the reasons I thought it would be better to break it down into periods and phases is that it was it was more than Ringo that um, what what the Beatles did is um, besides, you know, Ringo being so cool and playing to those songs was the coolest thing. But what Ringo did and what the Beatles did was to make the band a thing, you know. Yeah. It, it was a band. It was a gang. It was a, um, you know, Johnny down the block play guitar and Billy around the corner play bass. He can get together usually at the drummer's house and 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 jam and rock out and and learn songs. And um, that's what I feel the Beatles did. You know, um, because before that it was always like the singers with the backup band, whether it was the Four Seasons or what have you, or, you know, or, or, or solo artists or even Elvis for that matter. It was always the out front singer and um, and the guys in back and, and the Beatles, they were a foursome, you know, and, and that's to me what it did and what made it so cool and what made those who were into music um, so want to belong to a band. Yeah. So, and, and you'd mentioned some other artists from this same period, then obviously you, you, you thought, Hey, this band thing's pretty cool. You know, maybe that's something I should, should jump into. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause then the stones came out and they were like a, a dirty version and they were so cool. And, and then, and then, and then everything on the radio. Um, I mean, like one that really comes to mind that I was a big fan of was Dave Clark five. Um, the drums in their song were huge. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I, and I learned, you know, further on down the road that it wasn't Dave Clark playing at all, yeah. but Bobby Graham, you know, um, and, 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 but at the same time, those records, I, I just wanted to play the drums to those records, you know, and I was really, really lucky in that I'm growing up, um, you know, in like a three floor, the whole family's there, grandma's downstairs and my uncle's on one floor and we're on another floor. My uncle was a drummer and a huge Gene Krupa fam. And once he got married, the drums just 
stayed down the cellar. It, it was the cellar before they called them basements, <laughs> right, you know. Right. And and it was in the same it was in the same room as where the oil burner and my grandfather had a wine cellar, and it was just and the drums were there, Red Sparkle, WFL, um, and That's um, so cool. three piece. Yeah. You know, no floor tom. You know, it was just the drum stool was the trap case. You know, just this is really compact. My uncle did club dates, you know. Yeah. And once they got married, the, 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 the drums just sat there. And that's when the Beatles came out. So it was just like, this is so cool. Um, so I started taking lessons and playing with my Beatles records and, and, and my Dave Clark Five, my Rolling Stone and and that, that whole era. You know, yeah. there, there was there was more to it than than the British invasion. But that's what started me. And so you you grew up in in Brooklyn, yeah. Um, and how long? I know that you you ended up in Long Island, right? Did you sort of make that migration yes. uh, from the city yes, out to uh, the most, suburbs? Mostly because my parents, because there were four kids in this really small apartment, it was it was kind of getting silly. And my parents bought a house out in Long Island uh, when I was like sixteen, and that was pretty traumatic because at that time. I moved on to British Invasion 2. Right, which is our second. <laughs> which was <laughs> Cream and Hendrix, you know. Um, and and I was living literally on, at weekends in the East Village, uh, going to the Fillmore, going to the Electric Circus, going to see all these cool things. And my parents moved to Long Island. I was just like, oh, my God. You know, so um, I just continued to go to school in Brooklyn. I take the train in and stay with my friends, you know, and then go wow. to band practice and um, because this was, this was my town, you know, yeah. uh, and those were really important years, 68 and 69. So, so I basically split my time into, you know, maybe three or four days a week sleeping in Long Island, but the bulk of my time was spent in the city. Um, and were your parents there? Your parents were okay with this? They were okay with it because I was going to school. I was getting good grades. I was, <laughs> right. you know, it, I, I never had the luxury of like, I want to be a drummer. That's all I want to do. So I'm just going to quit everything and go to music school and just play the drums. You know, right. I, I had a more traditional upbringing where, you know, you need something to fall back on. And right. um, I went to school and then I went to college and I went to, you know, but, you know, it was all as soon as that last class was done, I'd run the band practice because you yeah. always had a band. Right, right. So what? Yeah. Tell, two things. Well, first of all, I want to yeah. I want to know more about the scene in the East Village. But before that, mm -hmm. let's let's talk about the kind of bands that you were in, the kind of stuff you were doing, and what the scene was like. You know, um, well, at that time. yeah, at an early stage, like teenage years, you'd play church dances and and sometimes battle to the bands and you know that kind of fun and um, and we played like a zillion of these church dances and we you know you'd play covers. We maybe every band we had a few songs we try writing and we'd have a few of our own songs, but mostly you play covers. And in the early early days, everyone had the same repertoire. It was like, you know, um, the the R and B classics, "Knock on Wood," "Hold On I'm Coming," uh, "Midnight Hour," you know, yeah. um, meets, things that people could dance the, to. Yeah, of course. meets the surf stuff, ah. the West Coast stuff, uh, because that was like you know. Uh, a, a big deal. Um, the ventures, you know, you played all of those penetration pipeline walk. Don't run all of that stuff. You know, that was always part of 
every band in my neighborhood when I was a teenager, that was part of the repertoire. That's great. And so this was, was, this was like, like mid sixties, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think I joined my first band, um, in 65 when I, I think it was in eighth grade. Yeah. 65. And, and we played like, you know, we played Beatles, DC five, um, beach boys, um, you know, the, a mix of all that stuff and the R&B classics. Yeah. Um, and, and the Motown stuff. And, and 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 it all blended just fine, you know. Yeah. It was all good. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, then, then when the, the, the second, the second uh, kind of phase of my uh, love for music was Cream and Hendrix. Um, and, and also there, there was a few West Coast bands I liked. I liked Doors and I liked, you know, a couple of the... Um, the, the San Francisco bands love the airplane. Uh, but I, I, I kind of gravitated to the UK drummers, you know, loved Mitch, loved, loved Ginger, loved Clive Bunker, um, BJ Wilson from Procol Harum. Um, the, they, they were, my favorite drummers tend to be British drummers at, in an early stage. I didn't get into, um, I, I was too young to have grown up with Max Roach and, and all the stuff that I got into in later years. Um, that's not what hit me. That's not what made me want to play. Well, certainly that early, you know, first British invasion period of, uh, of, of the Beatles and Stones, et cetera, uh, established, you know, something that was going on with these British bands where I, I think in the late sixties, you know, just wave after wave of great, great, bands came out of England and they were really on the forefront of what was happening. It certainly had good American bands and good American drummers. But um, when we think of, when we tend to think of that time, we think of all the great, you know, the great English bands. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and getting back to the New York scene, what yeah. was going on in New York at that time? Well, yeah. there were three really big bands. In fact, they shared the bill once um, out in Long Island and, Franklin Square, and we were from Queens. That wasn't too far, Brooklyn and Queens, where where we grew up. Yeah. Um, and those bands were the Rascals, the Fudge, and the Vagrants. Wow. Um, yeah. And I say them in order of, I guess, popularity, nowadays popularity. But back in the day, the Vagrants were the band, and that was Leslie West band. Oh, okay. Um, Leslie West, who would form Mountain, basically, yes. Mississippi Queen and all that. Yes, yes. I didn't realize um, they were a New York band. Oh, Vagrants were big Forest Hills band. Ah. Um, they they were all from Forest Hills, Queens, and, and um, they were huge. And um, if you ever ask Carmine about the Vagrants, and I'm not saying that they didn't, you know, have their own bit of uniqueness, but the Vagrants before the fudge. When you say the fudge, you mean you mean vanilla fudge, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carmine's, Before the vanilla Carmine fudge, band. right, right, and 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 Roger was the drummer in the Vagrants. Um, he had a big Fibes kit back in the day. What was Roger's and, last and, name? Oh God, I can't think of it. Um, I'll have to look um, it up. You, you Google it, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I remember Roger was um, was the drummer in the Vagrants, and he had this big Fibes kit. And and then Dino, oh my God, Dino was just like you and know, Dino Dinelli, Dino Dinelli yeah. with the Rascals, yeah, who was yeah, so hugely it was Dino and then Carmine. Um, but what but what I what I want to say is like the vagrants were really, um, they really started that thing of taking old songs and not not necessarily um, R and B songs like the Fuds took R and B songs and they made them into these big psychedelic arrangers. Well, the vagrants were doing that at the same time, if not before. 
I think they 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 influenced each other. And the vagrants would take stuff like satisfaction and and make these big ponderous arrangements, like fifteen minute long arrangements, very dramatic cool. and kind of like what the Fuds did with Hanging On, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that that I should I should point out for people, you know, the the Vanilla Fudge, their first album, just came out and set this new huge heavy tone that was actually sort of literally leading the way for what like Led Zeppelin would sound like. Yeah. And um, You Keep Me Hanging On was a tune by Diana Ross and the Supremes, a Motown tune that sort of had that jangly Motown thing, but they slowed it way down and brought this really heavy kind of psychedelic edge to it with the heavy, you know, psychedelic Hammond organ. And yeah. um, it still was really soulful, but it had this new kind of psychedelic edge. And that's what the Vanilla Fudge uh, was yeah, and of course, Carmine, you know, Carmine was uh, an integral part of that. Uh, yeah, of that and, and that kind of leads into um, the next era, which I call like the big sound, you know. Yeah, well, well, and, hold, and, hold on and, one second. I don't want to get too far. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the New York bands because yeah, sure. this is this is really cool. Like, you know, today I think of Vanilla Fudge. I don't think of them as a New York band. I just think of them as being a, a, a giant national band. And of course, they went on well, to they be were, that. They and were the, actually more from Jersey, I think. I think. Um, but um, but what's cool is that is your experience of these were the bands from the area that were up oh, and yeah, coming. Oh, yeah, they were the local bands. They were the local bands, exactly. So, um, you know, t talk to me a little bit more about the East Village scene because you, you had such an amazing opportunity and experience being in that place at that time from, you know, the, 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 the rise of the Beatles. You were just hitting your teen years all the way, yeah. all the way, you know, forward into the seventies. So, you know, you're, first of all, you're, you're 16 years old. Was it like, talk, talk, talk about the electric factory and, you know, when did the yeah, film, when yeah. did the film or East show up? Was that happening well, already or that showed up? No, I think that was early 68. I want to say, uh -huh. yeah, I think like early 68. I remember, I think I went to the, um, the fourth show they had there was The Who. Um, it was the night Martin Luther King was assassinated, actually. Wow. It was a really crazy, crazy weekend in New York. Um, and actually, they did this one long show because they couldn't turn the house over. Um, there were riots in the street. So they just decided they would just do this one two-hour show. And that actually just came out in the 50th anniversary pressing um and listening to it was like a real trip you know going back wow. 50 years and that, but anyway, so that um, was the who that was the who yeah yeah which was another one of my heroes of course I, I i it's hard to say like you know um ginger and mitch without including keith because he yes. was like the reckless abandoned like whoa you know uh another double kick guy you know and seeing um, seeing the who in 1968 i mean they must have just been like fireball of intensity at that time. Oh my God. Keith must have been yeah. crazy. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were, they were so intense. Um, the first time I saw The Who was at the Fillmore, this show I'm talking about, Keith didn't even have a hi-hat. It was right. like it was like driving with two accelerators, you know? Yeah. He, it was just like... No break. You know, how cool is that? I, um, there, and by the way, for the listeners, there is, there is, you know, people don't realize this, but Keith Moon did not use a hi-hat for large parts of his, of his time with the Who. He, he had two bass drums and his, both feet would be on the bass drums and he set up a, 
symbol. I don't know if you want to call it a ride or a crash, but he on the on the hi hat side a little bit higher, mm-hmm. and he would if he needed to, he would ride on that like a hi hat, and then he would go over to the ride <laughs> on the other side. But it's amazing because you don't even realize that he's not he's moving so much you don't even realize he's not using the hi hat. But I there's a, a fantastic clip of uh, Young Man Blues from right around the live at Leeds period where right. you can clearly see. Um, that he's using this. I posted on my Facebook channel a couple of years ago, and uh, it's just unbelievable. So tell me about some of the other shows you were seeing. I know the, the local New York bands were, were happening. Um, you know, you, you got to see everybody at the peak. Well, yeah, I mean, everyone played the Fillmore, you know, and, and, and sometimes even before the Fillmore, they'd play around the corner because our, 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 our weekend hang would we go to the Fillmore show and then we'd go to the Electric Circus um, and in the Electric Circus, I would see like Sly and the Family Stone. They were practically the house band oh there, God. and and they 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 played like before their originals. They were playing like Mustang Sally and the same R and B covers. I was just telling you about same band that core band yeah. um, with 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 Gregorico on drums yeah. and. And um, and I saw the James Gang there, Alice Cooper. You know, just it was like a club. You know, it wasn't a small club, but it was a club. You can so, go right up to the stage and yeah. be like, you know, a couple of feet from Joe Walsh or or Alice Cooper or whoever you saw there. You know, yeah, amazing. Um, and and then. Um, some of the classic shows I saw at the Fillmore was like then, you know, being a big Sly fan from seeing him at the um, circus, he happened to open for Hendrix the very first time Jimmy played at the Fillmore. And um, Sly did. That, that so show. you saw Sly yeah. and Hendrix on the same bill. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I'll never forget it. Sly did something no one ever did at the Fillmore because Sly was, you know, they were a show, you know, they were like, so they came walking down the aisle and then hopped onto the stage. No one did that back then, you know, they were dancing through the crowd and it was like, what's going on? Oh, that's the opening band. Wow. So it was kind of like a, uh, sometimes and, uh, you, you know, get like just... a uh, New Orleans brass band and they'll march in for the show or like a uh, Brazilian Batucada orchestra, they march in. Right, right, right. Except this you know, was... and, and, and now, you know, it's been done plenty of times. But like yeah, that was the first time I saw that at the Fillmore. No one did that, you know. Fillmore were more like you know just guys with their beer on the drum riser up there playing, tuning between songs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, so uh, talk about did. talk about Hendrix because you know he was something yeah. that that very few people. I mean, he was around for such a short time, especially. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was in England, but then it, by the time he came to the states, it was just a couple of years, really. Yeah, and well, you know, the first time he headlined was was back in. Um, you know, that era was over 50 years ago, right around that time, uh, close to after I saw the who there. And um, and this was so exciting because Hendrix was like he was like the man, you know, and he still is. You know, uh, yeah. it's like it's like Jimi Hendrix revolutionized, you know, all all rock to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and like um I remember, you know, you, you just remember certain things, you know, yeah. and and what I remember is Hendrix doing all this hammer on stuff where he would play solos with just his left hand. He wasn't even picking, you know, wow. his left hand was so strong. And and um, and and I remember them doing fire. It must have been twice the tempo. Yeah. It was the fastest boogaloo <laughs> you've ever heard. Oh, you know, cool. so those are like some of the things I remember from that night, him playing the solo in Purple Haze with one hand and and Mitch just on fire for fire. Yeah. Um, and 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 it was just, yeah, I mean, that, that was like an amazing um, show. Um, another amazing show I saw there was when Led Zeppelin opened for Iron Iron Butterfly, you know, because uh, wow. with anyone. 
Yeah, when anyone from the Yardbirds, Jeff Beck Group was another one. I saw Jeff Beck Group with Rod Stewart open up for the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And they blew them away. Yeah, it was yeah. just like we went to see the, the Beck Group. I mean, you know, I respected the dead. But right. like, you know, the, the getting back to the English thing again, you know, these guys were onto something very cool. You know, um, first the Beck Group and then Zeppelin after that. Um you know, where they were taking all this American music, but they were arranging it and doing just really cool stuff with it. And 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 I think, you know, the, the big band back then that really put the footprint down was the Jeff Beck group, you know, with mm. um with Rod Stewart, you know. Yeah. And then when Zeppelin came out, um, it was like, wait a minute, this is the Beck group, you know. The first time I saw Zeppelin, they were even doing some of the same kind of songs, you know, mm. uh, that same concept. But then later on, you learn that, you know, Jeff and Jimmy grew up together. Uh, the whole, right. um, there's actually a documentary right now that's on Showtime, oh. uh, still on the run, Jeff Beck. And they do a really cool thing on those early days uh, with Rod Stewart. Yeah. Great band. Ronnie Wood on bass. Yeah. Great, great band. They did two records and they were all brilliant who was the drummer uh, in that that version well of the the, Jeff Beck? mitch it was it was mick waller, mick waller um yeah. who if you know mick waller he also played on the early stewart records he played on every every picture tells a story oh, maggie Rod may records. Yeah. oh wow yeah okay yeah. great he played so, on all that stuff. let me let me just step back one second so in yeah. even though you were a fan of the beatles and the stones did you see the beatles on any of their american tours did you get a Never. chance to see them uh, i remember when they played chase stadium yeah. and i was gigging myself that weekend because, uh, you know, we're always playing church yeah. dances or what have you. Yeah. But I remember I remember the whole thing and a lot of my friends went and um, but no, I never saw the Beatles live. Yeah. So all the, the saw them individually, but never as the Beatles. You know? Right, right, right. Crazy. So um, any other kind of shows from that period? I mean, you know what the artists you've listed are just so epic from that yeah. late 60s period, you know, I mean, just to be in New York, one of the musical centers of all of this, where everything's happening, and you're really at ground zero, you know, it's just uh, yeah, for a guy and, like and, me who's, who, you know, didn't, I didn't grow up and start going to concerts until the late 70s, I, I, you know, I'm just like drooling at the thought of being able to, if I was 10 years older, being able to go to, you know, some of these other shows, you know, but um, anything else come to mind? Well, you know, I guess I can just tell you about my favorite bands and all of these bands I would just go yeah. to see every time they were in town because it's not like you wanted to see a band you could turn on YouTube, you know. Right. So like Jethro Tull, every time they were in town, I had to see Jethro Tull. Mm. Uh, I love Clive Bunker. Yeah. Um, I loved all those early records. Um, Procol Harum, I love that band. I love B.J. Wilson. Um, or the tasty drummer, amazing fails. Yeah. Um, Interesting that see. you talked about that. Led, this must have been Led Zeppelin's first tour because yeah. I know they. You said they opened for Iron Butterfly. Yeah. And uh, Ron Bushy was the drummer for Iron Butterfly. And during right. when I was in high school, I got really into Inagata De Vita, of course. Uh -huh. And I had the live album where, like, their version of Inagata De Vita is like the entire side, you know, side two of the live album. So it's like a <laughs> twenty-five minute version. So you might, you know, that I mean. To see Led Zeppelin and then to see a 25-minute version of Inagata De Vita. <laughs> Everyone was bill. asleep by the time that happened that <laughs> night. Led Zeppelin. Uh. It was like those two shows, like when, when Zeppelin opened up for Iron Maiden and then a year before. Iron Butterfly. Beck, Iron Butterfly. Oh, I, yeah. Iron Butterfly. <laughs> and, when, and, when, um, and when Jeff, Jeff Beck. Beck Group 
um, Jeff Beck group opened for the Grateful Dead. Right. Those two shows are so memorable because they were my favorite bands, Jeff Beck group and Led Zeppelin. Yeah. That, that was really, like I said, set the footprint for a lot that followed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. so let's, let's um, we sort of maybe covered two or three of the periods you were talking about, but I'd like to now talk about as we move into the seventies and you're um, developing yourself as a, as a, as a, as an important player, um, you know, obviously we can hear all your influences and obviously, you know, you're, you're a, a double bass guy. Um, and how did all that turn into the good rats in that situation? Well, um, double bass and good rats kind of came, came together. Um, I met Carmine, in about 1972, it was his very first drum clinic. Oh and, yeah, this is a great story. Tell this. Yeah, story. <laughs> yeah. And it was like at this basement of a church down the block from Sam Ash in Hempstead, Long Island. It was 71, 72, that era. He was in Cactus. Um, Timmy went up and played with him during the the the, the Tim clinic. Tim Bogert, and, the bass player, who would yeah, then be in, in Beck Bogert and Apathy with the three and of them. Vanilla Fudge and, and Cactus. Fudge, yeah. And and um. And so I just like naive kid, I, I you know, what, I 15, you know, he was, he was probably 20, 21. Um, and I just went up to him and I said, man, you're so cool. You know, I would love to take drum lessons from you. He gives me his number. And, and, you know, at the time we had just moved out to Long Island and, and I couldn't even drive. I was like, you know, 16 or something. And, and my mom would drive me to Carmine's house to take my drum lesson. Um, and, and I walk into this guy's house and I'm like, wow, this guy plays drums and he's got his own house. And I remember he was like, he, he, he used to hang crack symbols on the wall and I used to look at his records and, and he had all this Max Roach stuff and, and we took lessons um, from syncopation and stick control and the Chapin book. He was a traditional, you know, that's what you studied back then. And, and he had like these Ralph Pace practice pads and it was, it was so inspiring because, you know, I wanted to be that. You know, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, and what's um, what's so cool about it, and this is one of the things, I mean, I, we interviewed Carmine for uh, the book that um, I did with Steve Smith, The Roots of Rock Drumming. And one of the amazing things, you know, you think of these heavy rock drummers and you don't really think about them being trained, per se, or having a lot of, you know, studied technique, per se, although, you know, a lot of them did. But um, Carmine, you know, was talking about as a young man he's he, he's took studied for years and years took a lot of lessons and he was extremely proficient he was a great jazz player um and uh anyway so tell more about about what what were you studying out of what was he working on at this time <laughs> at the time while we were studying out of syncopation stick control shape him I expressed my desire to get into the whole double bass thing because I thought it was the coolest and I was a big Ginger Baker fan. And he started me, um, really started first developing my left foot, which is kind of lazy back then, um, and really shifting my point of balance. And he was writing realistic rock at that time. So he would be writing out these exercises from realistic rock before, you know, a year before the, the, the book came out. It came um, out about 73, I think. Yeah. Something and I was like studying that. from him. Like I, I forgot if it was late 91 or early uh, 71 or maybe early 72 Amazing. was the time that I studied with him. Uh, and, and for a few years, uh, on and off, uh, because then I got my own record deal and I started doing my thing, you know, with, with good rats. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, back then it was a really cool thing. And here's a really crazy story. 
when Carmine went on the road with Jeff Beck, he had a sub fill in for him, and his name was Joe Markowski. And um, Joe was an amazing technician who taught me, literally taught me how to play doubles. You know, I mean, um, got my doubles so strong going through the Al Miller books back then. Mm. And, and Al Miller was another famous teacher out on Long Island, right? Yeah, York, and he had like these kitchen. four classic drum books, and yeah. that third one with the yellow cover was triplets, and like you played accented triplets, but all the notes that weren't accented were double stroked. That got my doubles together big time. Mm. Right. Yeah, it was a wow. very cool concept, and it was just like that totally got to me. Anyway, the craziest story of how this thing evolved is I'm taking lessons from Joe, I had just left. Oh, oh Joe. So from, yeah, from set. Joe when Carmine was on the road right, with Jeff Beck. Right, right. And um, Joe told me he's looking for a guitarist and bass player. I just left the guitarist and bass player because he hooked up with these brothers and they had this band. And it turned out it was the Good Rats. Um, and, and, and so I said, I got a great guitarist and, and, and bass player and turned them on to my friends. And then about a month later, my friends called me up and they said, these guys are great. They've got great songs. They got a production deal. But we need you in this band. And I wound up like joining this band that was my drum teacher was playing. And it was very awkward, um, to say the least. But um, that's how I joined the Good Rats. Uh-huh. And so, so what year was this? And 70, 72, late 72. Uh-huh. So they already had been a band for a little while? Yeah, yeah. They had a, they, they were a band five years before that. They put mm. a record out in 69 um, and then broke up. And then they were restarting. They're looking for a drummer. They got this guy, Joe, because they asked Al Miller, who, was, who the best student was. And mm. Al recommended this guy, Joe. And um, so, yeah, that's what happened with that. And I started uh, playing with the Good Rats back then. And we were playing half of their, their songs and half covers. Um, and within the first year, we signed with Warner Brothers. Um, so it was just like such a perfect time for me. I was so lucky in that it was like now we're getting into 73. I'm finishing college, you know. And where, did you, where did you go to college? Up in Harlem, CCMY. Uh-huh. And and so it was perfect timing, you know. I just finished college, took the degree, put it in a drawer, and became a full time drummer. You know, <laughs> right? It was perfect. Yeah. Um, and, and and so talk a little bit. I mean, were, they were based on Long Island, right? Yeah. And so so do me a favor and talk about the Long Island scene because a lot of people think of New York, they think of New York City, but actually yeah. there was a huge music scene on Long well, Island. Well, it was. It, I, I have to say it was really tri-state, you know, mm. because Jersey was no different. And right. what it was is the drinking age in the 70s was 16. Ah. So anyone who was, I mean, 18. But anyone who was 16 could get like phony proof or borrow their older brother or sister's proof and get into these bars that had live music. And and so these clubs became bigger and bigger. I mean, if a grocery store went under, it resurfaced as a rock club, you know, and they yeah. put like two, three thousand people a night. Wow. You know, now this happened while we were just starting out playing covers and then we get our record deal. But we were still knew this this and we have a name because the local stations were playing us they were playing our demos even before we we were signed and so we have a pretty big name as an original band in the tri-state area so 
we had the luxury of going to all of these clubs back in the real scene when they're putting two, three thousand people a night into these clubs, playing one show a night and playing all our own music. Yeah. So what we did in the years of Good Rats, the main years of Good Rats was 74 to 80. Mm -hmm. We would play these clubs six months a year and then we would tour the other six months a year. And even if we broke even when we toured, when we came back home, we did so well playing these clubs um, that we're a really successful band. Um, yeah. and it, it was, it was good days. And, and, and they were like B bands, even C bands that had road crews and their own trucks. And it was like, you know, we, we had a crew bigger than the band, you know, we, we traveled with our own lights, our own PA. Uh, it was like a day long thing. So you, know? you, didn't, you um, didn't have to set up that double bass kit on your own. You had some. I never set up. I'm so spoiled, which is why I asked you. I said, "You carry the cymbals and snares to all these gigs." Oh uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a <laughs> that different. That would kill me. Well, and and this this is you know for some of our younger listeners perhaps, but even some folks that are that are older. Um, I mean, this is the world that used to be live music, live bands. You know, was a thriving scene. Live rock bands in the '60s, '70s, '80s. You know, even into the '90s. Um, and you know, drinking age was younger, probably drink drunk driving laws were not as uh, strongly enforced. Uh, and there was, there was not a lot else to do. I mean, you go to the movies, there was TV at home, but there weren't that many channels. So people were, went out, they went out and they looked at, you know, they went to see live, live bands. And, um, it was a wonderful time for working bands. Like you said, even the B and C bands were doing great. You could make a make great a living. living as as a as a as a rock musician you know go get paid at the club not well here you have to sell these 500 tickets and if you do you might make some money you know pay to yeah. play kind of thing so now talk about because i know you know kisses came from originally came from long island twisted sure. sister originally came from long island yeah. there was a band called zebra see i remember growing up in the late 70s as a kid and going to the record store and i would see zebra i would see the good rats I, but yeah. being in Hawaii, I never heard any of those bands because you guys, I guess, they didn't. N neither of those particular bands had a had a national hit, but certainly they were. You were a, you know a featured act. Um, yeah, well, well, back then, uh, you know, Twisted were doing like heavy metal covers, and they used to open for Good Rats a lot, you know, because we were good friends, and um, we would play, you know, have them do shows with us uh, whenever we could. Uh, and Zebra, same thing. Zebra, I actually turned them on to all the agents up here when Good Rats were playing in um, New Orleans. Uh, they came up, introduced themselves and said, we hear there's such a great scene up there. And I said, oh, man, we changed numbers. And I gave them some agents and they moved up and they started playing the circuit, you know, and they were big Zeppelin clone band and they played hard rock covers, but they were writing. You yeah. know, as as Twisted did eventually, once D started writing, Twisted became like a, a, a different, a whole different thing. You know, were, and, were, did and Twisted fun. Sister, did they have all the makeup at that time? Did they have their yeah. th that whole thing? Together oh, from day already? one. Yeah, from day one. Yeah. And the only time they didn't wear makeup was the, the record that I recorded and toured with uh, in 87. Mm. Um, they they you know, which was great, you know, um, I just just moving moving all over the place in eighty seven, actually in eighty six, when AJ left the band, D mm -hmm. had asked me to do a new band with him, but he said he wanted to do he had to do one more record with Twisted and I did the last Twisted record and tour and then we did the new band, which became Widowmaker in the late eighties. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and, and we did two albums with Widowmaker, but 
um, at this point, um, it was tough, you know, because uh, the the Seattle thing kicked in and right. the hair bands were, were passé. We're you on know? the way out, yeah. And yeah. talk about KISS, because I know several of the guys from KISS were from Long Island. I don't yeah. know, if, did they get their start in Long Island? And did were you around yeah. at the, ev- yeah, they at the genesis of, of what they, they were club about? Club in Queens. Yeah, they were Club in Queens. They didn't really play the bar band circuit. Um, they played like um, more of the city clubs and um, there was a club in Queens called Coventry that was really big and um, they were big there. And then they got signed to a mega label, you know, that whole Casablanca thing right. and, and, and were really well handled and well managed. They really yeah. had it together. Yeah. Um, and, and they came out the same year as Good Rats. So I'm like not one of those guys that grew up with Kiss and was a big Kiss fan because, you know, they were just like, all right, these guys are makeup, you know. Um, right. and, and, you know, so it wasn't. And, and besides, be, I, I, was a, I was a rock snob back then, you know, because once the fusion thing kicked in, forget it. I, right. I, I didn't really want to listen to rock, um, you know, um, like like I, I remember like the first time I heard Intermounting Flame, like like. I didn't want to hear rock anymore. Mahavishnu I, I, Orchestra. I had to go there. You know, yeah. I had to go. Mahavishnu and 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 all of the bands of that era became. While I was recording in the Good Rats and playing in the Good Rats, my inspiration came from guys like Tony and Billy and uh, Alphonse Muzan and you know the drummers of that era, Lenny White. Um, that's what I was listening to. Well, just one more quick thing about the Good Rats before we move on to this next phase. Um, the, I remember when I first moved to New York and now it's, I've been here almost nine years. I was driving home late from a gig, uh, from somewhere outside the city. And I heard this band on the radio and I thought, what is this? This is some, it was terrific, great seventies rock, a lot of great improvisation. I thought, is this Kiss? Cause if you listen to Kiss's first album, it, it's a lot less polished than what some of their later stuff in the seventies. And of course, then in the eighties became, but um, it turned out it was the Good Rats, and they—I think they had uh, they had Pepe on uh, Pepe Marcello, who was the the leader the of the singer. band. Yeah, and Mar- Marcello, sorry. Uh, yeah, and it was fairly soon before he died because he died in 2013. So they were interviewing him on whatever independent station this was, and they were playing a lot of the Good Rats. And I think this must have been before you and I met, but I knew that you were the drummer in this band. So. Um, and I just marveled at what great rock and roll it is. So I encourage everybody to go check out the Good Rats because kind of an unsung hero type of a situation where, you know, great, great band that never quite, you know, had the, the you know, the million selling. Or maybe you did have a million selling single, but, you know, it's uh, it really worth checking out. And, of course, great drumming on it. So um, and, and well, a lot they, of it they, kind they, of came from that same place, that New York rock and roll kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Late seventies were really magical time, and yeah. to be part of that scene. Yeah. Now let's before we uh, get into well, I guess let's talk as as you begin to talk about your your fusion evolution. Of course, you're listening to Billy Cobham and Narada Michael Walden and a lot of these guys. And yeah. uh, along the way, you know, obviously you studied with Carmine. You saw realistic rock and what sort of I mean that of course is probably one of the most legendary rock drum books period any drum book of any style so maybe a lot of people don't know this but you wrote the very first quintessential double bass drum book so maybe talk about that and how you know when did that come about in, in this evolution you were going through 
Well, you know, after Goodrats, uh, you know, like in 1980, things started going under in the scene because they raised the drinking age and people weren't going out that young and, and blah, 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 you know. So, you know, things just like, kind of fell flat. We lost our deal with Arista um, because we insulted Clive Davis when we were playing. <laughs> Oops. Plan- <laughs> yeah, you can't. You, we, we, we were very Zappa-esque and we were a very kind of fuck you kind of band like and 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 we were very irreverent and uh it didn't it, it didn't sit well with clive you know so right. so we we're just kind of fumbling around and 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 i just kind of took the next train out you know the next offer i got i just like bailed you know um and 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 left and started playing in other bands you know yeah um but like um yeah, where were we? What, where did this question? Well, double bass and the, the fusion yeah, double thing bass in your stuff. book. Yeah. So, so, so when I first did, I did do this. I did this tour in Canada for a year. I played with this band, Chilliwack. Oh, Chilliwack, another band that I heard yeah. all about when I was a kid, uh, but never yeah, really they, knew Yeah, they had a couple them. of MTV hits and yeah. blah, blah. But, but getting and back Chilliwack, to the, Chilliwack is a town in Canada, right? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And was, in one, in some incarnation, they're still around. The singer Bill yeah. Henderson still keeps the name, you know. But anyway, I, I always it, thought they were called Chilliwack, which I thought yeah, was a bizarre yeah, name. Chilliwack, though. Chilliwack, yeah. uh, they were huge in Canada. I mean, yeah. see, Canada has this thing about like one third of everything on the radio has to be by a homegrown artist. Right. So they were homegrown artists, and they have these huge hits up there, and they would play in hockey stadiums, but no one even heard of them in the States. Yeah. Uh, so I went up and did this big arena tour just because i wanted out there was no yeah. scene here i just wanted out yeah but then when i came back from that there was like nothing I, it was like okay now what do you do yeah um the scene was gone and and i always wanted to write a book you know kind of influenced by carmine when i met him he had written a drum book and i i was like always getting complimented on my double bass work and i just couldn't even take the compliments because i wasn't doing anything i was just basically playing really fast singles you know um and i wanted to do something more musical you know um so so that was the premise of the book um to get away from you know to get away from that and to have a systematic way of playing rhythms um, and I kind of, um, it kind of really emanated from the straight system of sticking, which you probably know, yes. uh, Ed Straight from the Nard days, you know, the, the initial, you know, um, drum book days. Um, and, and, and it was like where, you know, if you were playing like say, uh, 16th notes, the right hand would play all the eighth notes and the left hand would play all the E's and us. And you had that system of playing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you, now, you sort of took rudimental kind of ideas and began to apply them to the, to the yeah, to but the not, not like I was playing paradiddles with my feet because uh-huh. that didn't, that didn't fly with me. You know, I mean, I've seen Virgil Donati and some of these like, like amazing drummers um, nowadays do that sort of thing. But that, that didn't, even my mind didn't even comprehend that back then. Mm. I just wanted to do something musical. I wanted to have a real easy way of not having to think of what plays want. If I wanted to play along with a guitar riff and if I wanted to go, um, I can go. Ah, Right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right. 
you know, that, that kind of thing. So, so I use this system of straight system of sticking for my feet and I'd play all the eighth notes with my right foot and all the E's and O's with my left foot and play broken rhythms that way. Mm. Um, and, and I just labeled it single stroke system and wrote this drum book where, uh, you know, the whole first part of the book, I'm just playing backbeat and my feet are playing these rhythms, both duplet and triplet format, you know. Yeah. Um, so is it kind and, of a linear sort of an approach? Well, it's, you know, the, the feet are just, the feet are playing as if you were playing a single stroke role leading with your right foot, you know, mm. but you would leave, you, you take notes out of the role, you know, but um. the remaining notes played as if the role were continuous, if that makes sense. To you. I see. I you see. know, so, yeah. so it was a, it was a, it was just a, a system of playing, you know? Right. Um, and, and, and so, so I did that and I started, I worked for about a year on really kind of trying to turn my, playing around, you know, um, to where I'm leading with my dominant foot, because I, like many drummers, like Carmine and like a lot of drummers of that era that changed from single bass to double bass, including the um, Ginger Bakers and what have you, and it, you know, they all basically kept time with their left foot and their right foot played in between. Right. All the drummers, because what you were doing with your left foot was keeping time. So right. you throw another bass drum there, you keep time. What? Guess what? That means you're leading with it. Right. And so all of the drummers from that era, Ainsley Dunbar, all of, they were all leading with their left foot, including myself, because it was way easier. And oh. that's what Carmine, that's the system I got into with Carmine. And you played eighth notes on your left foot, and then you played in between with your right foot. Got or it. if you play the shuffle, you played, you know, you play your parchment farm or hot for teacher or quadrant four. You know, yeah. you play time with your left foot and you play the last note of the triplet with your right foot. Uh -huh. And that's the way 90 percent or maybe 95 percent of double bass players evolve. But it was a closed kind of system because, you know, if you were going to play like, say, right, left, right, left with your hand. You want to go right, left, right, left with your foot. You don't want to leave with your left foot because right. you want to come down on the one with your with your right foot and right hand. You know. Yeah. Uh, so 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 I turned it around and and you know so funny. I used to talk to everyone back then. I talked to, at Nam shows. I'd corner Terry Bozio and say like Terry, when you do this, what are you? Oh no, I start with my left foot, but then I'll just play a double right at the end. You know. And I'm like, oh. Oh, no, <laughs> I, I yeah. The only guy that was into like this right foot thing was Smith, you know, Steve Smith. Steve Smith. He was yeah. the only guy doing that. Uh -huh. And, 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 um, yeah. And, 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 and being such a fan of his, um, that kind of gave me confidence in the system, you know, saying like, Oh yeah, if Steve's doing it, it must be cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fantastic. Because Steve is a very systematic guy. Yes, he is. Uh, he is, and, and, he is and, the most um, systematic practicer I think I've ever met. Oh my, my God. Life. He's, He's like the eternal student. I love I love him for that. You know, he's just so enthusiastic and um, he's he just one of the best, you know. And, you know, and it's I have to tell just a super quick Steve Smith story that highlights good. this. Um, I can't I can't remember if you were at this luncheon one time at the drummer luncheon. Uh, the drummer from Loverboy was there. Were you there I brought him here. Oh, I you brought, brought him. him. Okay, of yeah. course. Yeah. So he told this story that Loverboy was opening for Journey in the 80s. I was at that tour. I remember. Yes. That. And he said that Steve had a small kit under the stage and he played the entire Loverboy set to warm up. And then he then he would come up and do the whole Journey show. So he was just like warming up by 
by playing along with the entire Loverboy set. That's so funny. During that tour, he got this new sonar kit and he had like 22 inch bass drums. And like, you know, Matt would go out there with the big bass drum, probably 24, but like, yeah. you know, he had the big sound. Yeah. And, um, and Neil was saying like, Oh man, you got to get bigger bass drums. You got to get, and you know, so then so Steve, Steve had to yeah. jump up to the, uh, the 24s, you know, uh-huh. and tilt his toms more and do all that, that kind right, of thing. You know? right, right. But we, we met, I used to open up for journey a lot before yeah, you Steve told me about when, this. when Angelie played, um, you know, yeah, and when and they were they, they started out as basically a kind of a uh, jazz fusion, a prog type of oh, band. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was all prog. instrumental. There was no vocal, right? Or Greg yeah. Raleigh would well, sing. Well, no, no, Greg things. sang. The, yeah. the keyboard player sang, and, right. and 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 but like you know they were proggy and they were so cool and Ainsley. It was so great to play with him oh, and yeah. watch him every night. You know, because Ainsley had played um, with and, Zappa. He had played with uh, Jeff Beck. He played. I mean, he was a he was a British legend. Oh yeah, he yeah. played with everything up to White Snake. He's on, right, he's on the right. Still of the Night, that big yeah. White Snake record, yeah. you know, uh, Starship. But anyway, Starship um, then Journey. then then we play the show with um, Journey when Steve first. Well, the both Steve started um, singing. You know, it was it was Perry and um, Smith, and we play the show with them up in Rochester, and that's when Steve and I met and became friendly. Um, and, and, you know, we're just like, you know, two wing nuts, you know, talking drums. And we both like a lot of the same players back yeah. then talking rock, you know, we were both listening to so the, the, and, the good rock, the good rats would open up for, for journey. Yeah. 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 And this was when, or, uh, late, se- uh, this well, late like, 70s, I guess. Yeah. Late 70s, 78, yeah. I guess, you know, 78 is that, and that was our peak, you know, late seventies was our mm. peak in good rats, you know. Amazing. Um, so how, yeah. how was the book received once, when did the book come out? First of all. So 84. 84. Okay, great. And how, I mean, I assume it's, it still sells today, right? I mean, it's, it, no, was... it was, it, it still does. And, and, and then, and then like, you know, back then, and it was um, there like were the only a handful of drum videos out right. there, just like the Gad and Lenny White had with DCI. And then Bill Bruford had one with this other company. Oh. Um, and it was actually Flickr. Axis was called Axis Video. Access, and Axis yeah. approached me about doing a video. And I was just like, at the time, I didn't have a steady band. I was saying, oh, yeah. And MTV was the big thing. And I didn't have a band that I was on MTV with. So it was just like, yeah, I'll do a video for my book. And it just made perfect sense, you know. And and I did that back then, um, and and I related it to the book, and I put print on screen, and did all this stuff, and try to make it as educational as possible to build that whole double bass thing for myself, you know. Yeah. And, and it, it led to good things, you know, because like you know, I'd play at NAMM shows for my drum company, or at the time was Premier, and that yeah. led to a lot of you know um, going into late eighties. It was like a whole really cool thing going on with these. Um, guitar players, you know, um, these, uh, you know, uh, from Ingmay Malmsteen, and you know, he started this whole new generation of guitar heroes. And I got to play on a couple of those records, like Vinnie wow. Moore and Blue Saracino. And yeah. uh, and then it evolved into Leslie West, you know. Um, I wound up coming full circle and playing with one of my childhood heroes, um, which was kind of cool. What did you do with Leslie West? Or just, was well, that- in the, like... Well, a, a couple of things like back in the late eight, when I joined with Twisted, um, I used to hang with D and Howard. Uh, Howard Stern was a good buddy of D's and wow. Leslie was a good buddy of Howard. And so the one thing led to another. And Leslie was asked to be music director for a series of five pilots for Fox for Howard Stern. 
So I was in the house band, and this was going to oh, be as a replacement man. to The Late Show back when Joan Rivers was hosting it. It was bombing. Wow. They were looking for a replacement. So I'm saying now this is going to be the gig of gigs to be in a late night show yeah. playing like, you know, my hard rock, you know, playing with Leslie. And so we would have people like Joe Walsh would be a music guest. I got to play Rocky Mountain Way with Joe Walsh doing and that. Was was Howard Howard Stern wasn't the host or was Yeah, he was the host. He was you, the host. You can you can find these on YouTube. Fox decided to can it. But ah. you can find them you can find them on YouTube. Um but that was the house band. It was me and T.M. Stevens was on bass oh, and, yeah. uh, and and Leslie on guitar and um, Alan St. John from Billy Squire's band was on keyboards, you know. Wow. Um, and, 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 and so that was like, you know, in 87. And then after that, Leslie would ask me to do some club gigs with him. And, 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 and we're at this one club gig in South Jersey. And this guy, Marty Scott, who used to have this label called Passport, he offered them a deal because he was a big Howard fan. He was a big Leslie fan. He knew me from the Good Rats because the Good Rats were on Passport at one time. Yeah. So he offered Leslie a deal on the spot. And Leslie says, I got a couple of tracks I'd like you to wipe drums on. That would be a good – he had he had demo drums. And, and, and so I just wiped the drums and, and, and played over them. Um, and, and we start – he had a couple of other riffs. And we start riffing and, and, and putting some, some, some more ideas down. And, and one day I said to Leslie, I said, like, who's playing bass and because just the two of us up there you know making a record and he goes you know in typical leslie fashion i don't know what do you think and i <laughs> said as a joke i says the one they call jack bruce <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> so, so he calls jack bruce and jack bruce is like les you caught me at a good time i just finished this tour i can come by this weekend oh my so, god so, so check this out here i am two days later doing a record with Leslie West and Jack Bruce. Unbelievable. <laughs> and it gets better. That it was a Saturday. We get a phone call early in the morning because we're in this little town up in Millbrook, New York, um, and, and close to Poughkeepsie. And we get a call in the morning from The Chance. You know the club up there? The Chance is an old vaudeville saloon, uh, a little old vaudeville theater. Huh. They, 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 they named it into the Last Chance Saloon. Uh, Good Rats yeah. played there years ago. Yeah. And now it's just called The Chance. It actually still exists. Anyway, they have a last-minute cancellation on a Saturday night. They heard that Leslie and Jack were doing this record together. Of course, it's a small town. And they said, would you, if we go on the radio all day, would you guys come and do a set tonight? And they were like, yeah, sure. So cut to the chase. I'm in the dressing room and Jack Bruce is writing a set list. Politician, spoonful, born under a bad sign. And I'm saying, oh, my God, I can't. And, and it was not even a thought of rehearsal because you just grew up with this shit. You knew the cream shit like, you know, yeah, that was like that was like religion. You didn't have to rehearse, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and we did a show. And then and then just to add to that. The show was taped because the the guy who was engineering the record says, oh, I got to put this on tape. Yeah. And we took a, a 20 minute encore of Spoonful, cut it down to about seven minutes and it's on the record. Wow. So you, <laughs> so you ended up doing a record with Leslie West and Jack Bruce. I know. Amazing. I know. That, that, and, and, and it was one of those moments of, OK, if I don't do anything for the rest of my drumming career, mm -hmm. I've achieved greatness right here because <laughs> this is two of my childhood heroes and, and i'm playing with them you know Amazing. it was it was really you know i can remember everything about that evening yeah very, very and by cool. the way i should point out 
that, you know, we mentioned that Leslie West had been part of the Vagrants and he was part of the band Mountain. Well, Mountain actually played at Woodstock. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's that's another thing. People don't realize. I thought they didn't come out again until, you know, they came out in the early 70s when Mississippi Queen, but they were at Woodstock in the... Sixty-eight. So yeah, and then Leslie and Jack were tight because they had done 69. that West Bruce and Lang. Yeah, um, they yes. did a couple of records with that thing. So so Leslie and Jack were, were really yeah, tight because yeah, Leslie great. was really like a like a New York Clapton, you know, uh, like like Clapton with more with more. What can I say? More New York. It was right. you know it was heavier, more aggressive. It was more yeah. you know, but it was blues roots, you yeah. know, and and you know if you ask Leslie what his favorite record is of all time, he'll tell you Fresh Cream. You know, um, he knew he knew the Clapton song. He knew the Cream songs better than he knew the Mountain song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're we're running out of time, but there's a couple okay. more aspects of your career that I really want to get to because you okay. know, it's just as a player, we've looked at a lot of stuff you've done, but actually, for the last several decades, you have focused more on uh, the the on being on the other side, uh, the, the production side of music. And yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, and believe it or not, I remember seeing your name in when Mariah Carey's first album came out. I remember looking at the credits and going, Joe Franco, the guy who wrote the double bass book, is playing <laughs> on the Mariah Carey's first record? Well, well Talk well, about that and how that led you into post-production, because I think that's a really amazing story. And I think, yeah, you know, well, go ahead. It, it's, it's a cool thing. I mean, you know... Um, I, I had a background in electronics and, you know, I studied computers and that's actually was my major in college, you know, only because it was just easy for me. Yeah. You know, the right program. So this electronics thing came out in the mid 80s and I said, screw this. Give me my sticks, you know, and then it gets more popular, more popular. Well, maybe I'll buy one of these Simmons kits because they came out with this SDS seven and yep. you can actually you can actually burn chip burn your sounds into the proms and makes it a little more personal. And I, at least I can hit them with my sticks, you know? So, so I get a little more into it. Then I'm like, I, I about 86, I'm doing the second Fiona record, this gal Fiona. I did three records with her in the eighties. Uh-huh. And we're doing the second record and I would like 10 tracks and I do say seven tracks. And then the producer, Bo Hill, he says, okay, well, we're going to bring in the programmer uh, for the next three tracks. I said, the programmer, who the hell's the programmer? You know, and that, that's what was the real slap in the face, like, get with it. You're not mm. intimidated by this computer stuff. So I dove in head first, you know, because at the time there was this sampling drum machine called the SP-12. Mm-hmm. And there was that evolved into the MPC-60 and the samplers, the Akai samplers went from the S-900 to the S-1000, the S-3000. Everything was getting better and better sounding, yeah. as was Pro Tools and everything else, you know. So I just dove into it big time. And um, started making some noise and, you know, word gets around and all of a sudden uh, the guy that used to get called to do all the jingles, you know, with uh, do, I only get called to do the beer commercials and the football stuff right, where it right. had to be the, the macho rock shit, you know. Yeah. And, and so now all that guy programs. Oh, OK. And so, you know, word gets around and all of a sudden I, I hook up with um, Rick Wake, who was a very popular producer uh, at the time. And he just did the first Taylor Dane record, and and it was really popular. Taylor Dane, yeah, and, yeah. So he very got heavy late eighties uh, heavy yeah, programming. This is yeah, late eighties, and he he doing the second album, and he asked me to do the drums. You know, so so then I had like uh, three number one singles off that record. You know, with Taylor Dane. I'll, I'll, 
yeah, I'll be, I'll be your shelter and love will lead you back and every beat of my heart. And then those are all off that record. You know? And was that regular acoustic drums or was that programmed or a that, combination? That was, that was, well, it started out as programmed. And then at that time, it got into this thing where there was this software called Studio Vision. And what that did is it, they, and it labeled you to combine four tracks of digital audio with your MIDI sequencer. So I would use my D drums as my MIDI and real symbols as my digital audio and have a really pretty believable drum sound, um, a drum kit. Um, and the, and the coolest thing about it for the producer is at the last minute, he could change the snare sound, which was very common. Uh, right. It's like that snare's a little thick for this track now, you know, anyway, that whole thing led to, you know, Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, Diana Ross, and, and a lot of, a lot of stuff I did in the late eighties. What that did is put me on the other side of the glass, and it got me very interested in uh, doing more composing, doing more uh, producing, and, um, and, and more programming. And one of the things I used to program for is Sesame Street. They used to have a steady band, but they wanted to do these things on the off-season where they would do these, um, you know, uh, the first thing I did, C drives me crazy. The uh -huh. leather seat. Oh, really? And 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 they, and they wanted to get that fun young cannibal snare sound. They, Could you make that sound? I said, yeah, of course. And yeah, I studied the sound. I made it, and I did the sea drives me crazy with the same snare drum sound. And then I, I I got involved with Sesame Street doing these direct to VHS things that would go out, you know. And Sesame the Street. Producer so from, on the yeah from Twisted Sister but and, producer and, and of to the Sesame show, Street. The, yeah, the producer of this show, though, this is where the, the whole um, studio thing comes in. Yeah. He was starting this new show called Between the Lions. Mm. And they wanted to, like Sesame Street, put together a core band. And he asked me if I'd play drums. Wow. So while I was doing programming for Sesame Street, he wanted a band band where I'd play drums. Um, and I helped him put the band together. And we wound up getting Skyla Deal and Danny Walensky and Ross Trout. It was a great band. And, and then we had the greatest singers. We'd have Nikki Roger, Nikki, um, uh, Nikki Richards, and 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 all kinds of great New York City singers. Um, and and it became ten years of really fun stuff, you know. Um, and that's what got me involved with children's television. And 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 basically, what happened is when they first asked me, I said, "Well, if you want to hire me as a drummer, maybe you want to come and check out this." On this studio that I just put together, because uh, I had just put together Beat Street because my home studio became a baby's room. That's mm. another whole story, um, <laughs> right. and a great story because I met my wife in in, in you know the early nineties, um, and 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 so so they came over, saw the studio, they decided they could do the whole show there, and this is like around like ninety ninety one, and it led to my new career, which is for the last you know almost twenty years now. That's all I've been doing. It is is tell tell just a little bit more about what goes on at your studio because it's interesting because it's mostly now post production. Yeah, um, it but, started out as a music studio. Uh -huh. It started out doing you know um, advertising and blah blah you know whatever we can do, and I would use it as a com composer studio. I play drums on people's records, but then once the children's television thing came in, um, it became you know music for children's television and it evolved into like, wait a minute, you know, I'm the music guy. I got this little dat tape and I'm going to this post house um, and they're doing the real mix of the show. 
And I, I, why am I not doing that? You know, so once the, the post house had went under and I, you know, basically said I can do that. And they gave me a shot. And so now, you know, we're a post company. We're a so music ex- and post facility. Explain, explain what, uh, what uh, audio post is. Well, basically, you know, music is one thing that you hear in, say, and, and, you know, a lot of these shows are animated. So you're watching an animated film or an animated show. And, yeah, you hear music, but you also hear footsteps and you hear ambiences and you hear uh, all kinds of background sounds and, 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 and everything you hit, you know, you need to make a sound for it, you know. So it's a combination of Foley, footsteps, sound design. Um, and, 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 and then all, the, all that has to be mixed together, of course. Yeah. It has uh, to be mixed. And nowadays it all has to be mixed in five one, right. You know, so the studio, which, you know, went from one room, to two rooms, to three rooms, you know, now we're like, we have six pro tool stations here, wow. uh, in four studios. And, um, and we do this all day long. You know, yeah. I'm here now, I'm here now in my little office. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, around me is going everything from, podcasts to television shows to films you know we do audio for all different media and and it's you know it's it's really i'm I'm a very lucky guy because it came at a time when i started having kids and you know now my kids are now 20 and 23 um and i was able to actually be at home for their whole development and 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 you know um at a time where i was kind of tired of traveling to be honest with you yeah. it's like i'll play for free pay me for the other 23 hours exactly uh, at that stage <laughs> of my life this fell into my lap you know because they asked me to play drums on a children's television show you know amazing so yeah it was really really um i, I find myself very lucky um you have to combine a little bit of luck with being an opportunist you know um, but the whole thing kind of fell into place for me and I, and I couldn't be happier. Well, what, what strikes me, Joe, about your career is that you, you never stop looking forward. You know, a lot, a lot of, you know, say musicians would have had, Oh, I got signed to that major label with good rats and now I'm going to forever just try to, you know, reinvent that and do that and do that and do that. And you sort of said, okay, I'm done with that. What's next? And you kept well, progressing and moving well, with the way the music industry moved and how you were moving in your personal life. And I think that's really inspirational is that, you know, life evolves. We have different seasons in our lives and how we're going to take our skill sets and what, you know, be brave enough to try the next thing that maybe we don't know if we could do it or not. Well, new new equals exciting to me. You know, yeah. moving on to new things, it energizes me yeah. and always has. Uh, so, so, you know, fortunately things still have to fall into place. So it takes a combination of being there at the right time and opportunities presenting themselves at the right time. And, um, it's all good. All good. Well, it, Joe Franco, it has been an enormous pleasure to have you on the show. I learned a lot that I didn't know about you. Um, and, uh, it's just great to fill in the blanks and it's been a, a real pleasure hanging with you. And I'm glad we we're able to document your story in this, in this kind of Yeah. Well, I always love talking drums and everything involved, you know, so a pleasure for me as well, Daniel. And um, I hope to see you soon. I'll be um, checking out one of your Monday night shows soon. Excellent. All right. Very good. Thanks a lot, Joe. All right. Have a good one.